What is happening? Are you ready for this to be over yet? I know I am. You are listening to American Babylon live on tape, a podcast with Dan Cannon. Dan is a legendary civil rights attorney from Kentucky, one of the people that brought us gay marriage, uh, or I should say an end to a ban on gay marriage in America. That's just one of his career exploits. We get into a lot of what he's done in his life. He's an amazing guy, very interesting to talk to. Tons of cool insights on civil rights in this country and where we are and where we're going. This is part one of our interview with Dan Cannon. We will be back with part two tomorrow. If you like this stuff, please subscribe to our SoundCloud page and pass it on to someone else who might like this kind of stuff. Don't forget our live show upcoming on Tuesday, election night at Tap and Bottle on 6th Avenue in Tucson. Going to have some games and some fun and some panelists show up to talk. And we're going to watch the election results roll in and smugly discuss how it never really was that close anyway. Or will we? We shall see. Nasty Women versus Bad Hombres at Tap and Bottle on 6th Avenue in Tucson, our election night show. Please come out and join us, get drunk, regale us with your stories. We will regale you with ours. It's going to be a lot of fun, and we can't wait to see you there. This show is once again brought to you by that guy who said, You got beat, bitch. Let's hear that again. This guy called me up right after the Trump rally and left a message on my machine, and I just can't thank him enough. You got beat, bitch. This is American Babylon. We're live on tape with Dan Cannon. Check it out. Pass it round. Love you. Big kiss. Ciao, ciao. Hello and welcome. You are listening to American Babylon live on tape with the one and only, the immutable, the indefatigable, the man from Kentucky, Dan Cannon. Hello, Dan. How are you? Hey, Brian. How are you? I am well. Uh, I'm full of trepidation and fear and loathing. Oh, what for? Well, uh, you know... It's actually the first thing I wanted to jump in and talk to you about because you're uniquely qualified to talk about it, I think. Let me just give some background on you real quick. Dan Cannon is a civil rights attorney from Kentucky. Is that how you describe yourself, civil rights attorney? Yeah, that'll work. Well, uh, Dan basically goes out and takes on big, bad, sweaty corporate people or horrendously overreaching uh, bureaucrats and forces them to submit to his will, which is a will, thankfully, that includes um, right-minded progressive thoughts about gay marriage, for instance. So Dan's one of Dan's claims to fame is uh, a very famous case in Kentucky where a federal judge ended up throwing out uh, a ban on gay marriage that had persisted for some time. And remind me again the name of that case, Dan. Well, the case uh, here in Kentucky was called Burke versus Bashir and then Love versus Bashir. And then the case at the Supreme Court of the United States um, involving our clients and clients from three other states was called Obergefell versus Hodges. 
And that is, so that was in 014? Well, the opinion came down in 15. Okay. Right. And that ended up driving the final nail. Uh, that was it. Yeah. No more marriage bans. So that uh, means basically you can marry who you like, regardless of uh, their sex or sexual orientation. What a miracle. Right. Only took 250 years and a very nice man from Kentucky to get those things overturned. And it was a very nice uh, group of people from all over the place. And right. took a, took our little legal village to, to get that done. Lots of people have been working on it for decades, and we were fortunate enough to get uh, get in right there at the very top of the mountain. And that's how that works, right? It is like a very long-term process. And isn't that, that's kind of the basic nutshell story of why gay rights in this country have advanced, right? Over the last 25 or 30 years is legal uh, pleadings. People have taken the legal system to mean that their rights should be protected as well and have forced that issue into the courts. It's been a combination of that and and really uh, boots on the ground activism that's been driving that sort of thing. I mean, there's been legislative developments in different states, um, and obviously there's you know been court cases. But I mean, if you look back, I mean, we could spend the whole time talking about this. But I mean, if you look back, 1972, there was a Supreme Court case um, about gay marriage that was one sentence long. Uh, so this is not a constitutional question, basically. Case is called Baker versus Nelson. So you fast forward 40 years, which is really not a lot of time in a civil rights movement, um, to the Obergefell decision. You got 60 pages of not only is this a constitutional right, but it's somebody that it's something that should be enjoyed by everybody. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, there's been a lot of rapid growth in that area in not a lot of time. And it's involved, you know, not just the lawyers and the court cases, but just people. Um, you know, uh, helping to um, educate the public on who gay people are and, uh, you know, that they're not some monster in the closet or, you know, monsters hiding under your bed. That's, that's the way they thought that they were thought of in the 1970s. And there's just been a lot of change in public opinion that, that has helped to uh, wag the dog on those uh, court cases. Consider the dog well wagged. And that is one of the interesting divides between people that are, because I'm 34, people slightly younger than me, they have no idea why there's even this question about gay marriage or what gay people can, can or can do. And then people slightly older than me, they can go either way. Right. Uh, and yeah. I certainly come down on one side of it, uh, which should be obvious. But yes, I'm pro-gay marriage. Um, is that even a question anymore? Anyway, why did I bring it in? Why did I want to talk to you? A whole bunch of reasons, but you know, I think we'd be burying the lead if we didn't just mention the name James Comey. And uh, if I could just get your thoughts on that situation, what did you think of a how he went about it, about it, and b what he went about doing? Well, you know, look, I'm not a political pundit, and I don't know, uh, you know, everything that there is to know about the job of an FBI director. Right. Uh, I think that, I think that Comey was in a tight spot. Um, and he did, you know, I, I, I don't envy the guy just in the sense that it doesn't seem like he's going to make anybody happy no matter what he does. And he's in one of those sort of politically, um, tenuous positions, um, where, you know, uh, the entire left is against him one day and the entire right is against him the next day. And, and he isn't making anybody particularly happy. 
but in terms of you know what is it that what is the ultimate outcome of anything that he's doing I, that's that's anybody's guess it is only a guess i think that was the problem i had with the whole thing was the way he phrased it if he had been very clear and succinct and come out and said look i haven't looked at the emails the guys that are telling me that they're the the professionals in inside the FBI that are telling me that these might be pertinent, they haven't looked at the emails. Nobody has seen the goddamn emails. This might be a future issue. Mic drop. See you later. Instead, he threw this big ball of wax that's already burning into the middle of the spectacle, and just kind of said, "Well, interpret my very vague." Uh, overly succinct statement to mean whatever you will. And that's exactly what people have done. Yeah. And, and I mean, who knows if he's, uh, I, I understand that it would have been difficult for him to wait until after the election and then spring that stuff. But uh, I mean, who knows if he's trying to be cute in the way that he's phrasing it or what? I mean, I, I couldn't tell you. I don't know what's going on in that guy's head. And I wouldn't want to be him. I'll tell you that much. Oh, uh, it sounds terrible. Uh, I mean, you're a busy guy fighting these cases, defending people, attacking Donald Trump in a legal setting, um, but you don't have to answer to the entire country, and and the, it is like a maniac situation that we're involved in right now. So I definitely don't envy him. I don't think it's going to sway the election. I'm also not a political pundit, but it looks to me like most of that stuff was already baked in anyway, and it, it we're very tribalistic right now. Whoever you were for, you're already for. That's right. If you're not swayed by some sort of email scandal and I just, I, you know, that's the uh, kind of where I sit is I'm just sort of sick of hearing about emails, you know, and if that's, that's just become the one trick pony on the other side is let's beat this email thing to death. Cause it's really the only thing we got. Um, and I'm, I'm tired of hearing about it. And I think most people that are, um, of this political persuasion that I am are also tired of hearing about it, but no. A lot of conservatives have been critical of this focus, but it's like you say, that's really, there is an obsession with this issue on the right, because that is the one thing that they can say when people say, well, Trump has a hearing in a case where he's being accused of raping a 13 year old next, next month, or Donald Trump has, you know, been accused by the New York attorney general of committing for like basic fraud and con man tactics in the Trump university case, these things all add up and there's, you know, literally like two dozen of them on his side of things now. So it is like impossible for them to respond to that without going, well, Bill's a rapist or, you know, Hillary sent some emails or didn't send some emails. It's, it is getting tiresome. Thankfully there's only six days left. And then presumably our man Trump will just fade away. Um, Although you're going to have some dealings with him going forward anyway, right? How much can you tell us about, and just some background there, Dan represents, I believe you still represent him. Dan represents the, the three people who were attacked at a Donald Trump rally um, way back in March uh, in Kentucky. Is that case still going forward? It is, um, at least as far as we know it is. Uh, they filed motions to dismiss the case. Uh, right off the bat, which is not something that was terribly unexpected. Um, and we filed responses and we're waiting for um, a severely backlogged federal court to make a decision on the briefing. And um, we'll know more after that. I, I do not expect that we'll receive a decision before the election, but um, I've been surprised before. Oh, so you might actually get something back as far as the motion to dismiss before the election comes? 
it's possible it could happen. I mean, it could have come in while we were, you know, talking about uh, James Comey, for all I know, uh, that we were sort of subject to the whims of the federal court on that. So we get the opinions when we get them. What's your feeling about that? I mean, I don't know how much you can talk about, but uh, can you break down the basics of the case and why you felt there was a case there and, and what you guys are doing and arguing? Sure. Well, from our perspective, you know, our clients were attacked at a political rally. Uh, they came to peacefully protest and they got attacked. Um, as near as I can tell, trying to look at the history of this thing, and there isn't very much history out there on it, um, this has not happened a lot in American history, you know, where you have people that go to, people going to protest at, at presidential campaign events is not terribly unusual. Um, and I think that's probably happened as long as there has been, you know, had, there have been presidential campaign events in America. Um, what's really unusual is this sort of repeated uh, attack on protesters who are there to peacefully protest. Um, and that's happened consistently with the Trump campaign, um, as you well know. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, I had a group of plaintiffs that were willing to, to say, you know, we're not going to tolerate this and we shouldn't have to tolerate this in, in a democracy and in a civilized society. Um, so, I mean, you know, philosophically, that's what the case is about um, in terms of the legal nuts and bolts of it. It's a straightforward assault case um, against the uh, white nationalists and the other folks that uh, actually attacked my clients. Um, and it's an incitement to uh, incitement to riot cases, basically the best way I can put it, but it's an incitement case against uh, Donald Trump himself and against the Trump campaign. I was really tempted to sue. Um, and I talked to some people about it. The reason I decided not to do it, to be quite honest, was I felt like if I sued him, I couldn't say a whole lot in the interim. And I felt like if I sued him, I want, there was a lot more I wanted to do um, during the campaign. I didn't think a lawsuit would be all that an effective way to attack him at that point. Just because, well, to be honest, I saw your suit filed and I was like, well, he will change his tone now. I, and he did. He absolutely changed his tone after you guys filed. Um, but I, I didn't think it was that ineffective, even though I would love to take money out of Donald Trump's pocket and kind of mess with him a little bit. I felt like my lawyers would be telling me, well, you can't do this. You can't do that. You can't go to the conventions. You can't make videos. You got to keep your mouth shut about Donald Trump. And I just wasn't interested in doing that. So for me at the moment, it was, and by the way, Donald, if you are listening, I still have time. So don't think I won't do it. Um, and I think I have a libel per se case against Donald Trump because he has slandered me in a number of settings. Anyway, that was my basic thinking about it was, well, I'm not going to be able to get that much of an effect. They're probably not going to re-report the case. It was already really damaging to him, but it was definitely necessary for somebody to step up and do it. So I was glad to see that you guys did. I don't think anyone else has sued him that I'm aware of outside of you guys there in Kentucky. Are you aware of any other suits that have come out of all these attacks? I think there have been. Yeah. Um, there was one that happened early on up in New York uh, before we filed. And uh, there's another one that has been filed, but I can't remember what the jurisdiction is. So what was the impact, if any of the uh, project Veritas release that was made, a couple of weeks ago, uh, maybe on 
I don't know if it would have any, I'm assuming it wouldn't have any impact on the actual legal case, but maybe it would. Um, but certainly on the perception of it, because, you know, people were attacking me for being a shill of the campaign or of George Soros immediately after I, I got attacked on national TV. So certainly now that there's this supposed video that, you know, supposedly shows democratic operatives talking about supposed machinations to get people to go and do these things. All of that is highly dubious. And I certainly won't give any credence to what anything James O'Keefe says, because he's a lying son of a bitch who, who edits videos in such a way that you really can't make, make, make hay of them. But did that have any impact on the perceptions of your case or, or anything at all in that way? Not that I know of. Uh, and I haven't seen the videos myself. Um, you know, I, I don't think that it could have had any impact one way or the other because the same thing that happened to you happened to, to all of us, I mean, including the lawyers on the team, where we were accused of being paid by the Bernie Sanders campaign or being paid by George Soros or getting paid by, you know, whatever. Um, just the, the vast sort of left-wing conspiracy idea um, that – that peaceful protesters would be in it for the money somehow. Which is all true, by the way. And I'm about to go on a long vacation funded by George Soros. And I expect to get even bigger checks from George Soros going forward. Um, well, congratulations. If you can put me in that pipeline, that'd be fantastic. I'll have my, his people call my people and then get, eventually get in touch with your people with the proviso that I get 30% of whatever you and George negotiate. That's fine. It's just, well, look, that's not going to be up to me. It's going to be up to the elders of Zion, as you know. <laughs> we are living in batshit crazy land. You know, George, so Donald Trump, the day after I got attacked, went on George Stephanopoulos' show and he said, oh, Sanders is a known professional agitator. His words, Sanders has been at all my events. He's always going around causing these problems. He uh, was dragging the U.S. flag on the ground. He wore a KKK mask. He uh, insulted this poor black guy that was at my rally, and he had it coming to him. 30 minutes after that was done and, and the transcript of that interview was posted online, there were articles, breathless articles in Zero Hedge and on Infowars, which were spouting the same lies as if it was news. And within like four or five hours, there were like half a dozen articles on the internet, all of them quoting Donald Trump's statements uh, without any evidence. I mean, there was no picture of me at another rally. There was no evidence that I had ever been to another rally. Like you say, there is no evidence that any of us have been paid. I certainly have never been paid by anybody or contacted by anybody. And yet here we are, the the narrative was spun by Donald Trump and real quickly became that I was a professional shill and I've been attacked in that way consistently. I mean, at the convention, people would come up to me and be like, you're pathetic. I mean, they would say the most vile things without knowing any facts. What is that? I mean, is this a new phenomenon where this guy can actually get into an interview on a major national show say whatever he wants, not get fact check. I, I think Stephanopoulos pushed back on him a little bit, but we're in this world where there are two sets of facts. There are alternate realities. I'm never going to be able to convince people and nor that I do, do I really care. But the simple fact is like we're living in a where we, we have two different alternate visions of what is actually true, not the interpretations of it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I keep saying that we're in post-factual America. Right. Uh, 
and and uh, you know it just seems to be the case where I mean if you're flooded with misinformation it's really difficult to sort out what is true and what is not but I think the bottom line is that it doesn't really matter so yeah we were talking about post-factual America yeah, I mean, I just think there's a big segment of the population that, that don't really care all that much about facts and don't really care all that much about what truth actually is, uh, because, you know, truth is a concept that may or may not be supported by actual facts that happen in the real world, right? So you have this idea that we talk about a lot in uh, the criminal justice system called confirmation bias, where it's, you know, essentially the whole idea is the means justify the ends. So if I have this idea about, you know, uh, what America ought to be like or uh, just a simple idea that I want things to be better and there's somebody out there that's telling me exactly what I want to hear, which is things are going to get better, never mind how, um, then, you know, that that's very appealing to a lot of people. Well, it is. And, you know, people keep talking about, oh, what about the next Trump? I think that's bullshit. And the, the main reason is that there is no other Trump. Trump came into this thing with like nine or 10 million Twitter followers. He came in with a massive social media presence and uh, was already a celebrity. I really don't I don't know of an equivalent kind of personality, certainly not one who's willing to get out there and say the things that kind of propelled him to political prominence in terms of, uh, you know, Mexicans are rapists. We're going to build the wall, all the bullshit he was saying. Well, maybe so, not, but I mean, you know, had he been a little bit more polished about it, and I think this is what people are saying, you know, he, like now the idea is that there's going to be some politician that's emboldened to say that the kinds of things that he has said, which, you know, nobody was saying before, uh, but they'll be emboldened to say all these insane things, but dial back the insanity a little bit. So, you know, you have somebody that's a little bit more polished that still says all these uh, populist, uh, you know, demagogic sort of things that, that he's saying, uh, but in a more refined and reserved way, and that that's going to appeal to a lot of people. Um, and, and not turn off the same people that Trump has turned off by saying, grab them by the pussy or whatever. Allegedly. Yeah. Oh, wait, there's video. That's right. Uh, it's not allegedly because there's actually a recording of him saying that. Right. Well, I don't want to put, I don't want to hold the man's, you know, words or actions against him, but. Uh. Nor should you. And if there's one thing that's clear about Donald Trump's surrogates is that they don't want to do that either. Yeah. You know, um, I'm not sure how much you watch CNN, but the basic like fundamental morass that they're living in over there is just totally insane. And uh, let's not even get off into that. I, I wanted to keep going though on. Um, so what the hell is going on? Is this really just the 30% of the country that is like inherently racist and kind of smug about being white and angry about about the status of, you know, white people. I mean, you're in Kentucky, Dan, so there's got to be a whole lot of kind of uh, knuckle-dragging racists out where you live. I know there are out here. Well, and I'm in a pretty progressive part of Kentucky. You know, Louisville's uh, consistently Democratic, consistently off to the left, at least compared to the rest of the state, which isn't saying much, but I think regionally we're, we're, we're progressive. Um, and, I, you know, I certainly don't have any kind of big scale answer as to what's going on. I mean, I, you know, I think that, uh, I will say that I've been surprised 
um, to see, you know, the sort of uh, Nazi, fascist, white supremacist cockroaches come out of hiding. Um, and, you know, normally, up to, I mean, for so long, and maybe not that long even, um, but it seems like, at least during my lifetime, that when those cockroaches came out of hiding, you turn the lights on them a little bit and they scatter. Well, now they're not scattering. They're just sort of standing there and waving their little Nazi cockroach flags. Um, and that's been surprising. I mean, you know, it's, I think sort of the breadth of the appeal of the white nationalist movement of, you know, white supremacy and the, the alt-right thing overall has been um, surprising to me. I think it's become punk rock. Um, it's kind of a big fuck you to everything. If you look at like how people interact on Twitter, I mean, I'm sure you've seen some of what's going on in alt-right Twitter, um, from Pepe the frog all the way down and Pe poor Pepe, Pepe, there's a great example. That's a meme that's been around forever and, uh, had nothing to do with white nationalism or any kind of racist, you know, demagoguery of any kind. But the alt-right just smashed in and in the last year and a half stole Pepe the Frog. I mean, even Pepe. They got Pepe. <laughs> uh -oh. See, I was not familiar with Pepe. Uh, white nationalism brought Pepe to me. So Pepe has been around for like 12 years. It was a very innocuous meme. You can look at like the history of the meme created by some people that were just in like ads and they were just doing viral tests and Pepe hit and... He took on all kinds of different kind of scenarios on Reddit and on 4chan. And then this year, you know, 4chan and 4chan is kind of the attitude. Do you know anything about 4chan.org? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. 4chan is the, for me, the attitudinal kind of structure of, of the alt-right internet. That, that's where it gets it. It's deep snark. It's nihilism. It's, it's like utter cynicism about the possibility of progressive change of any kind in any situation. Um, it mocks sincerity at every level. And, and that has been applied now to this populist white uh, nationalist movement politically that has sprung up seemingly out of nowhere, but you know, let's face it, it really hasn't sprung up out of nowhere it's just found a very strange and unlikely internet megaphone. Like it is surprising the ampli amplification that these people have been jacked up to. I am definitely surprised by that. Uh, you cannot get away from these people on the internet and the deep level of anti-Semitism they show to people that are Jewish or not is just strange. You know, I've always like been weirded out by anti-Semitism, but now you have, I mean, like Jacob Weisberg is talking about, He's, he's attacked constantly. That's the public, the editor of Slate. He's attacked constantly for being a Jew. Um, That's a weird it, thing. Yeah, I've seen that, you know, and it's like the anti-Semitism is just a sort of accepted norm now with these alt-right folks. Like this is, right. that's the thing. You know, maybe uh, making fun of black people is going a little too far, but anti-Semitism is, you know, for some people, right? But anti-Semitism is like the, the, the basis from which everybody starts and it's just out and proud and I don't get it. I mean, I don't, you know, I'll be the first to admit that I don't get it. I, I will push back on that by saying, I think the basis that everybody in the alt-right starts from is that women uh, are to be destroyed, mocked, denigrated and degraded at every chance 
And then if they're Jewish, we'll go at them twice. I do think that the all right at its base, sure, it's a white nationalist thing, but it really is a woman hating movement. It's a movement of people that don't like women being in boardrooms, don't like leaning in, don't like the idea that Hillary Clinton is going to be president, don't like Elizabeth Warren because she's brash and she doesn't take any shit off powerful men. I think the basic attitude of the alt-right is woman-hating first, uh, Jew-hating, white-promoting second. That's my viewpoint on it. Well, I won't argue with you. I will. Uh, I, I hope that you know it better than I do. I think that Donald Trump is an anti-woman phenomena and, you know, should hopefully be smacked down and, and rejected for that reason alone. The crazy thing for those of us that oppose him is that he's not being rejected for that reason alone. Yeah. Uh, that he continues to hold this attitude of, well, they either had it coming or they're too ugly for me to sexually assault. And these are bizarre attitudes. I've never been in a locker room where any of this stuff would ever be expressed. And even going back to when I was in high school, things would be said by dudes and braggadocious kind of things. These are 16 year olds, by the way. Um, but I don't remember anybody saying like, I'm going to grab him by the pussy. So the fact that his attitudes about women aren't enough for the American, American public to just reject him outright is deeply troubling, uh, for sure. And I consider myself a feminist, but I think it would be deeply troubling, even if I was kind of like a, eh, I like women kind of bro. Um, so that part of it is shocking, the level to which he maintains his political viability, even though he expresses these retrograde filaments all the time. Yeah, I mean, it's consistent with the message overall, right? We're going to make America great again by returning it to a white heavily patriarchal past, which means, you know, uh, people like, uh, like me, um, white straight men, uh, upper middle class can do whatever we want to women or to minorities or, you know, whoever, because uh, we're in charge. That's what it means to make America great again. It's interesting to see your career kind of dovetail with the national, you know, motif or the zeitgeist like going you've been fighting for gay marriage for civil rights for a bunch of people that have been traditionally underserved by the legal system personally like what's it like to do you feel that that's true like that you have found yourself like your career is kind of dovetailing with the national moment in this way well i mean i think it's it's definitely the case that you can draw a straight line from marriage equality to Kim Davis to Donald Trump, right? You know, I mean, I think all those things are, are interconnected. And every time you see major progress in the civil rights movement, you, you see backlash. I mean, you go back to 1968 and what was going on in the elections in 1968. It was nuts. You know, America made it through 1968. And what I keep telling myself is, you know, we made it through the Nixon administration and we'll, we'll make it through a Trump administration if we have to. Um, but I mean, I think that, that there's a direct correlation between what is going on and the popularity of uh, Trump and the alt-right um, as a direct response to uh, the enormous progress that's been made in the LGBT movement over the last 20 years um, and just enormous advances in civil rights in American society overall in the last couple of decades. I mean, since 1964, really. 
Right. So they lose on the black people question in the 60s. They start to lose on the gay people and sexual kind of liberation question at the same time and have completely lost that part of it. They're holding on to this idea that they can resurrect kind of the deep anti-abortion narrative legally. I don't think that's true, but they do hold on to this idea that, oh, one day we'll get the right amount of justices and we'll get Roe versus Wade overturned. But they've lost, and they lost on gay marriage. Well, they lost, by the way, with a, a, domin- a, re- a Supreme Court that's been dominated by Republicans for 40 years, but Republican appointees for 40 years. I mean, we haven't had a majority um, Democrat appointee uh, appointed to sp- Supreme Court since 1972. Um, so, you know, but, I mean, to say that we won on uh, or that they lost on the issue of civil rights for black people, uh, I mean, you know, is sort of sidesteps. And I, I, I ask myself, uh, you know, this question all the time, whether or not that battle was really won. Obviously, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was a big deal, but that led to President Nixon and it led to the drug war and it led to mass incarceration and it led to all the stuff that is making America not so great right now. You know, um, or at least a, a, a very big portion of that. So, uh, you know, these I mean, when you make advances, those backlashes can sort of reverberate for a very long time. If we had a President Trump, uh, which, as I said, I think is, is would be a direct response to the civil rights progress that has been made over the last couple of decades. We end up with a President Trump. Um, even if he resigns in disgrace, right, or is impeached or whatever, um, you know, he's still going to appoint justices to the United States Supreme Court. And the decisions that those justices make could spell disaster for the United States for decades to come. Uh, you know, it's a big part of the problem that we've got with the criminal justice system now is the, you know, the unwillingness of the Supreme Court to stop police from doing anything they want to do. And I'm getting way off track, but I mean, that's just, it's all kind of interrelated and and difficult to talk about as a whole. No, you're not off track at all. That's fabulous. Uh, That's, I think that's exactly what we should be talking about. And I don't think most people draw that direct line uh, from 1964, the civil rights act to Nixon, to the drug war, to mass incarceration, to this like weird, sclerotic scene we're in now where most players involved acknowledge that we have a big problem with how many people are in jail, why they're there and the racial makeup of same. But by and large, people aren't willing or or unable to enact like substantive reforms in that area. So I think it's a really interesting thread to, to go from 1964 to 2016. Like you say, impossible to encapsulate in a sentence. But uh, it's too hard. I mean, you know, it's too difficult. I mean, meaningful reform, especially when you're talking about criminal justice, I mean, even talking about it is difficult. But meaningful reform, as far as the criminal justice system is concerned, is is damn near impossible at this point without scrapping the whole system and starting over. And that's what a lot of people are talking about doing. They finally started to talk about, well, let's just rebuild the criminal justice system from the ground up. But how do you do that? I mean, it's not. What does that even look like? Right. I mean, the one thing that I think has been suggested that might be able to work within the current context would be some kind of severe community oversight 
board situation. I think there's some examples of this. They have one in Cleveland. The problem with something like that is Cleveland is a great example. The convention is assigned or won by Cleveland, however you want to look at that. The feds come in and hand $50 million to the local police departments there, completely bypass the community oversight situation that was set up um, so that, yeah, I mean, if what's the meaning of a community oversight board if you can just bypass it because of a special event? Uh, I talked to the guy that runs the NAACP in Cleveland, and that was his big point was, well, we have an unbelievably corrupt police department here, so we created this community oversight board that has real teeth. But now they just came in and bypassed all of that because they have a special event. So what the hell would it look like in theory even to scrap the criminal justice system and start over? I mean, obviously that's what we need to do, but what would that even start with? Would that would be like a federal intervention and local setups and then go from there? I don't know. I mean, we've, you know, the problem with community oversight boards and that sort of thing is not only can they be bypassed pretty easily uh, as in the situation you're talking about, but also, you know, the community is part of the problem. I mean, we've been conditioned um, to most of the community has been conditioned, including activists, including people on the left, have been conditioned to think of things um, in terms of, you know, the default mode for police officers is kill. And we're going to give them, you know, essentially a very big blank check uh, to do that, you know, that there are these, in, in other words, that there are these abuses that are built into the criminal justice system that are just natural features, like people are going to die, civilians are going to die, you know, if you, um, if you threaten a police officer, uh, you're subject to instantaneous death, uh, no judge, no jury, straight to execution. These are things that we take for granted about our criminal justice system. And it's not just the people that are, that are law and order people, but the, I think the public and the American public at large takes those kind of things for granted. You're going to get raped if you go to prison, right? I mean, these are things we take for granted about the justice system. Um, and it's really hard to, even with a community oversight board or even with, you know, community involvement of some kind, um, even with some pushback, it's really, really hard to sort of undermine that entire culture. I mean, it has really pervaded, um, you know, um, Americans' notion of what criminal justice looks like. We don't know any other way. This has been part one of Live on Tape with Dan Cannon. We will be back with part two tomorrow.